Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. I got to tell you, I invited today's guest largely because I just find them so fascinating. I'm just curious about you, Tristan. Ostensibly, the reason that you're here, Tristan, is that you created this company that said, hey, you know what? There are all these empty storefronts. What if we could do something with them? What if we could create pop-up stores in them, right? And the example that I've seen in the past is, well, Apple has her Apple store. Samsung has no store. What if Samsung could create a pop-up store? What about the influencer who you watch on YouTube or whoever? They should have a store where they could do it. What about the Instagrammer who has a design? They could have a store. People pop in for the day. They pay what? I went on your site. 250 bucks. They get a beautiful store in the heart of San Francisco for the day. Boom, bam. They move. It's a great freaking idea. You sold the company. You told me roughly that you got money from it and how much money. That was impressive. You told our producer about some of the headaches involved in running the company. I thought, man, that's forthright. That's open. Are you going to back away? Did, are you going to tell Ari much more than you tell me? Ari, our uh, producer? Hopefully, hopefully I can uh, tell you even more. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, don't hold back. I just talked to someone earlier today. I said to her, I know you had trouble at this company. She goes, no, I didn't. That was a wonderful company. You told our producer I got paragraphs of text here about how tough it was. I didn't just randomly say you don't like the company, but I guess last minute she felt she had cold feet. Um, our producer is really good at getting information from people, but I think that it also gives people a chance to say, you know, maybe I don't want it. So I'm glad that you're not going to hold back. All right. So Storefront is a company that you created. You sold it. The next thing that I want to find out about is what you're doing today. You've, you're at a company called CTO.AI. Um, it's managed Kubernetes platform. I'm going to ask you to explain what that means and why you go from running your, from founding your own company to working at this company. And then the other thing that's fascinating to me is you've got this syndicate on AngelList and I'm curious about how you're raising money, how you're sourcing deals, how you're investing in companies, how that's done for you. And then if we have any time in all this, we'll ask, I'll ask you a little bit about all this world travel that you've done. All right. Anyway, the guest, Tristan Pollock, then the interview where we find out all that and so much more is sponsored by two phenomenal companies. The first, I asked him, I said, Tristan, do you mind if I talk about Semra? She goes, we use it. So I'll ask him to talk about how they use it at cto.ai. And the second is HostGator for hosting websites. And I'll talk to you about how I use it at Mixergy. Tristan, good to have you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, Uh SEM rush it. No, that's been a great tool. Uh, we, you know, obviously we, we do a lot of content, helpful, technical and non-technical content for developers at, at CTO AI. And that's, uh, that's been one of the ways to just better I'm ask you about it. This is one of the reasons why sponsors love sponsoring Mixer. <laughs> I don't do the ad. The guest does it. It feels so much more authentic here. Here's uh, something that I want to start off with. Give me a sense of how much you got from this exit from storefront, the pop-up store place. Yeah. Yeah. For storefront, it was uh, in, the, in the seven digits. Did you personally get over a million dollars in cash? No. And okay. It was a mix of shares and cash. For Did you get over a million dollars total for yourself? For yourself? Not for myself. No. No. For the business yeah. as a whole. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. Um, so we're not talking about life-setting life setting amounts of money. We're talking about reputation. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? The idea for it seems to have come from you and your co-founder, Eric, where you were just walking around saying, what's our idea? Am I right? Yeah, yeah. We Well, 
we had actually worked on a company uh, startup before that, a social impact media company, and kind of had like a full, like almost exactly three years life cycle on bootstrapping that and then selling that um, uh, to a larger uh, social impact uh, journal. And that mm-hmm. actually led into, then we kind of, I want, I don't want to say like take, took a th- few months off, but then we just moved into working on storefront and we were in Minneapolis at the time. And so Wait, before, you were talking about social earth. What does that mean that it's a, a social, yeah. tell me. So, yeah. So uh, social earth was a solution journalism or like basically taking the approach that's kind of like opposite of a lot of mainstream media where it's the pitch is fear, the pitch is problems, but there's no solution. Mm -hmm. And so we worked with uh, a lot of uh, social entrepreneurs when that was kind of becoming a term and, uh, or like for-profit social enterprise where it's like, you don't, you can do good and not be a nonprofit. Um, Let's say like Tom's was becoming big at that time with the The one for one model. And so that's, we worked with like Skull Foundation, Ashoka. We covered things like the Arab Spring, um, all from a social entrepreneur's perspective and like, how do you, how, you know, what sort of solutions are actually making people's lives better? Was it a blog? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Cause, um, I, I you, you called it a, um, social impact media platform. I love this whole Silicon. I know you don't feel like you speak Silicon Valley, but you do, right? Like the blog becomes a social media, a social impact platform. All right. The other thing that you did was you got the, 200... the pitches get just ingrained in your head. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like, I got, that's, that's, you know, how many years ago that was 2012, I think when we, 2009 when we to 2012. Again. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so you got 200 contributors to come and write articles for you. You ended up selling to what is this? 3BL Media? Yeah. They were Small like the position. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that. Yeah. That was in like the six digits and but that much smaller. Uh, again, we bootstrapped it. It was a media company. You know, media companies yeah. kind of buy each other up. That's kind of what happened there. Um, and uh, they kept, we were running it for, I don't know, maybe till just a year ago. It actually, they finally got it. Uh, digested back into like their, their platform. Wow. All right. They did a lot. That was like when things were called like CSR is like corporate social responsibility versus like uh, ESGs now. What's ESG? That's like environmental social governance. Uh, it's kind of like wow. how now it's like, like how do you rate how well target or like Best Buy or Amazon are doing as corporations? And like, okay. they kind of metric metrified it a little bit. All right. And so you looked out in the world and you said, look, the same thing I did. The media just loves to tear people down. I, as somebody who loves entrepreneurship, I wanted inspiration. I didn't want to hear all the flaws that people had. Don't get me wrong. I want a full view, but can you can you at least balance out all the negative stuff by giving me what a vision of what's possible? And I guess that's what you wanted to do. You said, I'm going to be the balance. I'm going to show people what's possible in social impact by highlighting that. You built up the company, you sold it, then you and your co-founder there, Eric, started to look around for your next big idea together. And how did you end up with Storefront? What were you seeing? Yeah. Um, so we had kind of came out of a couple of friends that we had in Minneapolis where they, it's a very artsy city. I think more money per capita for the arts than any other city in the U S okay. um, if that still holds true. And we had a couple of friends setting up uh, pop-up art galleries in vacant stores and they kind of got, they had trouble getting insurance. They had trouble booking for the right uh, amount of time that they wanted. They were usually pushed from like a month to like three months or like six months. So like, all those things made it very prohibitive 
in order to, you know, do something that was just filling a vacant space that was empty, that wasn't doing anything for the community anyways. So we saw that and we tried to then start building this platform around it uh, in Minneapolis first. I like that what what I see on it now and storefronts up and running right now, I can say I'm looking for a spot in San Francisco and kind of like Airbnb will show me a bunch of beautiful photos, tell me who's a fast responder and let me book a, even a single day for 250 bucks. I could get a beautiful spot here. I like that. It's that type of marketplace. You intentionally wanted it to be a marketplace, right? You didn't want to be brokers. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There was definitely some like real estate tech companies that were wanted to take that like kind of brokers cut, but we wanted to, we, we, you know, for, for lack of a, of using another Silicon Valley cliche, democratize it a bit yep. and, uh, and just make it accessible to people who are creators, brand, brand, you know, up and coming brands, e-commerce going offline, artists, designers, and a, help them to do it. It's a freaking brilliant idea. It's simple. It's clean. And I, I would have thought once you had that idea and you looked around and you saw how much empty storefront, how many empty storefronts there were that people would be dying to work with you. And still you said to our producer, I went out and I started talking to the people who had these spaces and they weren't open to it. Who did you talk to and why weren't they open to letting you borrow it, letting you rent it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wide variety of people for a wide variety of reasons. Um, you know, we saw everything from, uh, let's say commercial brokers that were, you know, they just didn't want to deal with short term, you know, and short term to them is less than a year. So like the, mm -hmm. that means they're willing to sit on a space for a year plus and have nothing happen. And this a lot of times has become is something that's going on in the main city squares and busy main streets of you know New York and San Francisco and LA, which were our first three cities that we yep. focused on after Minneapolis. But in, then we, we also went to uh, smaller spaces. Like there's this little arcade in, in Minneapolis. And I was like, this is such a cool space. Like people would love to like, you know, think about the different types of collaborations they could do here. But, but then they maybe like the space is too small, you know? So there was a lot of like hesitancy to listing on the platform at first. But when you okay. found somebody who had, who was really excited by this, uh, you know, then like just people would get it. And then they how, would, and then How they did you list. find someone? Who was the first person to get excited about listing on your platform? Um, it was a lot of uh, kind of event space slash like art galleries because they're used to these kind of drop, yeah. pull in, pull out, like, you know, they, they can do events. They know how to set up and set tear down. You know, that's a bummer. I did see that on the platform right now that most spaces, they have couches, they have infrastructure. They're not these empty spots that I would have expected, which tells me that it's people who are professionally doing this. And this is just their way of finding customers instead of waiting for repeat visits and word of mouth to fill up their space, right? Yeah, it definitely changed over time where we folk, we wanted to fill this one in 10 empty vacant stores. That was the average of, you know, commercial retail in the US. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of that kind of urban, We you know, we focused on this, like kind of like, how do we have a real impact, um, you know, coming from a social impact company to this, yeah. it was like, we thought about the urban innovation side and that was, that was, so it was, it was, I think eventually things transition and you kind of are in the river and get caught up in it and it transitioned. And I think we ended up then focusing maybe more on the up and coming person that makes an amazing product, but is trying to find customers. And so we can, with marketplaces, sometimes you'll focus on one side or the other. I yeah. think we tried to focus on the, re, the vacant real estate yeah. and it became more difficult 
And we ended up focusing more on that creator. So then you eventually found a few spaces that were already ready to do this and doing this type of thing on a regular basis, right? Like the galleries. And you said, all right, instead of filling out our platform with more of these places, let's just stick with the few that we have. And now let's go to creators and show them what's possible. They could do their thing in person, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And we tried to bring the cost down too, I think uh, along that way so that it was affordable as well. How much did it start off being and where did you go first? Yeah. Well, uh, it it usually ends up being around maybe a thousand dollars for like, say a cart size. So that might be it for a weekend or a week. A thousand dollars for what? And that's like renting a, renting a space for a weekend or a week. Okay. All right. I saw a couple for 250. So I thought maybe that was more standard. All right. But that's still fair. It it might be for like a day or, um, and and it it varies quite Mm -hmm. widely. Okay. All right. And so then who's the first person that you were able to get to book on the platform? The first creator? Yeah. um, So that's a, that's a funny story because we basically got into angel pad in San Francisco um, after that summer working on it in Minneapolis and just kind of trying to build it out. And uh, the first, the first people we got was at the end of the program. So that was like when accelerators maybe still take somebody in, uh, you know, pre traction mm-hmm. where it doesn't happen quite as often anymore. Yeah. And uh, so kind of, we were like fundraising our seed round and setting this store. We basically rented a store in Westfield in San Francisco downtown and, uh, and filled it with 10 brands. We had, uh, yeah, all sorts of brands. Like we had a brands from like Mission Street uh, in, in Mission District um, or on Valencia. And like, they were like trying a different part of town. We had like a brand that was like military tech fashion. How'd you um, find these brands? <laughs> um, we, uh, a lot of them came through kind of like, you know, you think about how you hire your first few employees came through kind of our own networks. Like uh, we had hired someone who, Joy, uh, who was really this amazing person. Um, and she had had done a bunch of pop-up stuff. She had worked for Levi's and like helped us kind of build into this network, this retail network in San Francisco, which, you know, we were still very much outsiders. We had only been there for a couple months. Okay. How'd you get into AngelPad? Into AngelPad? Um, uh, some, some, you know, a few very good conversations with, uh, Tomas Corte, the, the kind of ex Google founder guy there. Um, we, what really convinced him was showing our MVP. Cause I think he liked the idea and his wife works with him closely, Corinne, and, uh, they liked the idea. Um, they thought B2B marketplaces were very interesting. There was a couple others yeah. that came in with us and, uh, you know, basically saw this MVP and we're like, oh, okay, you guys could actually execute to some extent. What was, so what was the MVP? What did you build it on? Oh, it, it was a, it was like a Ruby on rails, uh, first draft of the, the marketplace, the website. Okay. And we had like some of our Minneapolis listings, but we didn't really have any bookings yet. And okay. it, but it also didn't work? didn't work that it, it didn't work. Okay. It didn't really work that well. Okay. <laughs> All right. These days you could do that with no code, right? You could just find some platform, right? There's so many uh, knockoffs of Airbnb that you could just take as a first version, but all right. You showed that you could code or build something. You showed that you can get some listings. You you didn't need to show traction, like you said, and get uh, creators. Then you, it seems like became your first tenant. You were the one who first found a group of uh, creators. And then were you also responsible for bringing customers for them? Or did these creators have customers themselves? 
Yeah. Uh, yep. So we, we basically dog fooded our own, our own site, um, made it happen. And then, uh, because of the Westfield location, and that, I think that's what eventually started to become, uh, a key indicator of where people wanted to rent space was we just need to get spaces where people are already walking. Uh, if we get spaces in strip malls, we worked with some mall companies that didn't add spaces outside of like city centers it's just not going to work, right? Like you have to, they're looking for customers. And you, if you don't have customers walking by, it's just, it doesn't really work out. And so we kind of started to, again, that was another evolution of the marketplace as time went on. All right. It worked out there. Did you, did you figure out how to get more creators? Ones that will bring in their own customers? You did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How'd you do it? Yeah. Um, so then we started playing around with things we had done, you know, before, uh, as far as paid acquisition, Facebook was still, uh, like very, a very hot, uh, acquisition strategy at the time. Um, you know, this was like definitely the evolution of, of step-by-step building where in Minneapolis, we had just like an email signup form, right? A lot of people are doing the type form style signup these days. Um, and so we had that and we had like this MVP and then we can start moving into this marketplace, but we still did a lot of things with landing pages and like long tail SEO of having all these listings, um, you know, doing brand pages, uh, you know, we started getting really high rankings and also did, I just, I'm becoming from like a, you know, a blogging, uh, company from before just did a ton of content and like ranked really high for things like pop-up shop, which was still kind of up and coming at the time. So I think that was one of our kind of one of our key insights of working together for Eric and I is that we we both uh, we kind of hopped on this like social entrepreneurship trend that was happening and try and really like built something on it. And then same with like pop up retail is like we saw this was something really interesting and then built off top off of some of these these uh, kind of trending keywords. I would have thought, Tristan, that going after Etsy store creators who are already doing well would have worked or, or Instagrammers who had followings, but that's yeah. not what, what ended up happening. Is it? Well, we, uh, that's, that's a, you know, uh, this is also the heyday of, of growth hacking. Um, and, uh, we did a lot, we had probably a team of, of, uh, 20 virtual assistants in the Philippines, um, helping us kind of, do outreach and cl- and kind of clean data that was coming from Shopify, Etsy, Magento. Um, that was probably the most effective, you know, we were just reaching out to store owners saying like, we really, you know, want, we would kind of select, try to filter down to ones that had something interesting. Yep. Because like you said, with Etsy, you, 1% of the, they kind of have this like, you know, 1% rule. I feel like where most of the sales on Etsy are going to, you know, one or 10%, the top and the rest of, Etsy sellers maybe don't quite have enough revenue to be able to then not just rent a store, but outfit it and make it look good. Yeah. And so we, I think we kind of went up and focused on this kind of middle tier of, of, uh, makers that was like, you know, someone who could rent like for a th- rent a thousand dollar, um, ticket store for the week. And I guess this is before Instagram was what it is now. We're talking about 2012, I think you launched to 2015 yeah. when you sold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The problem with Etsy was, and I think it still is, there is no way to follow a creator, to watch them create. I bought my wife earrings from somebody who was right here in Mill Valley. 
I would have loved to have seen how she made the earrings. I would love to see how she made the rings that I bought, you know, to follow along and get to know the creator beyond the purchase. And they don't have that. And as a result, there's no reason for me to go back, except every few years I might go back and buy from the person where, and then they don't have a way of saying, Andrew, I know you like my stuff, come into the store, you know? Yeah, That's- yeah. We started to try to build up brand pages like that. I think someone who actually did really well in, at, at telling that story a bit, um, and it was sometimes more on like the uh, kind of consumable consumable goods uh, side of things, but Zarly, if you remember them, yeah, uh, they, they had kind of a platform that you could, they would really tell. And I think that it started to become something, but I don't know. It just, it, 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 it's, it's, it kind of didn't quite get there. There was definitely companies raising that were telling kind of brand stories and like maker stories. And, uh, and I think it transitioned into this journey telling that's happening with like indie hackers. And, um, and I, I, I'm really, I'm really excited, like building in the open and stuff. And I'm really excited by that, that movement as well. All right, let me take a moment to talk about my first uh, sponsor is HostGator for hosting websites. You know, Tristan, one of the things that I like about you, one of the reasons why I was able to say quickly yes when our friend Mike Del Ponte suggested you is you have your own website where, frankly, you get to tell your story and indoctrinate me into the life of Tristan. I was on your site. What is it? TristanToday.com? Uh, yeah, or, well, the one you're probably talking about is TristanPollock.com. Yeah, where the one where there's like, here's a list of all the things that yeah, I've done. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly... Like the fact that you and your wife went on a honeymoon that was also a sabbatical becomes a thing and a potential topic for the interview. The fact that you're, dude, the fact that you're on Product Hunt, you made it in one paragraph feel like, oh, damn, this guy's good. And all you're doing is like your own propaganda towards people like me, but it works. Here's here's why I like it. Because most people I interview hope that I will go out on the internet and research who they are and figure out what makes them great and that's a lot of work. Now I will do that work, but why put me out and why not have a, a hand in directing me? Just, just a simple page. The fact that it's on a site is helpful that says, here's what I did in a meaningful way. Yes, you could have linked over to your LinkedIn profile. LinkedIn has a lot. You're, you're pretty active there. But to give me the story behind LinkedIn, the story behind your angel list, the story behind your trip and the fact that I can go and see pictures of your trip there, it gives me a sense of who you are. I think most people totally miss that because they overthink it. They think a website needs to be this big thing when in reality, all it needs to be is a page on the internet, a simple page. It says, here's who I am. Here's how to get to know me, right? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, if I, I that, it kind of helps me just... Re- think about some of the highlights of my own life at, by being able to keep it in some sort of record like that as well. Like, it's like, you know, you end up doing so many things and you, you know, forget, I, I'm, I don't consider myself as necessarily a great memory. So it's like, here's some, here's some record of some of the fun stuff that I, I got involved with over the past decade. <laughs> I think everyone should do that, include the professional stuff and also the personal stuff. And It makes it easier for someone who's interviewing like me. It makes it easier for someone who's about to meet you, frankly. It makes it easier for somebody who wants to do business with you. They have one page. You control some of the, you can't control everything they know about you, but you direct them and you control some of the narrative. All right. If you're out there listening to me, I keep talking about how HostGator is a great way to host your site. I do that. Mixergy is hosted on HostGator. But I should also say, don't overthink it. And it doesn't have to be so big. A simple page about what you are, what you're doing, incredibly useful. Put it on the internet, forget about it and let it just be there to do work for you. All right. And if you go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy, you will have a simple 
inexpensive plan that will just work and scale up with you. Hostgator.com slash Mixergy. I should also say, Tristan, you get a low price when you do that. Really good price. Hostgator.com slash Mixergy, lowest price they have. All right. So coming back here, you finally are able to get some creators. I think you got to like 3,000 stores. Is that right before you sold? Mm-hmm. Let's now yeah. talk. We talked about the the good stuff. Talk to me about some of the challenges that you had with this employee without mentioning the person's name. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think probably one of the biggest challenges for a lot of founders is jumping into management without tons of management experience. I mean, we were still, you know, basically kids in our twenties, you know, raising millions of dollars and then starting to try to run this business. And then, you know, as you raise subsequent rounds, hiring a bunch of people where you expand out of a seven people sitting around a table to, you know, 30 people in different rooms and different teams. And I think that's when we, we started to see like, you know, start to, you, you start to see how strong your culture is and how much you're reinforcing the right culture. And, uh, we, we, in this instance, we had someone who became very toxic to the culture, but it wasn't always obvious because at the same time, they were also very productive. And they were just constantly working, like working as almost almost as much as the founders. Sales and position, so they were bringing in revenue too. Product, 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 kind of engineering. Ah, uh, okay. So they're they're were they just spending a lot of time there, or also prolific, really creating? Yeah, both. Okay, so spending a lot of time actually creating, and when you say toxic, what's the problem then? Yeah, I think the problem then is like the collaboration between employees and people on the team. And I think what some of the things that kept occurring was, uh, you know, okay, this person's really hard to work with. Um, and then not always, I get, then there's the other kind of art of being a founder leader manager that is approachable, that people feel trust and safety coming to you and talking to you about things that are hard for them. And I think that was that, you know, General, I think I was was kind of that person and filling that role. Um, but as the team got bigger, then there were less people. Maybe they didn't, you know, think to come. They didn't, you know, they weren't looking at me and maybe as their direct manager. And so there were like uh, a, a variety of things that kind of occurred, and then eventually people would just there was there was kind of a like almost like a slow drip of people leaving the company. Could you give me an example? It doesn't have to be specific if you want to hide uh what was going on with this person, but I want to get a sense of what the problem was. Why couldn't people go to him? Yeah, yeah, that's a good it's a good question. Um yeah, I think, you know, and it, there was just something about um the the vibe of this person where they seemed kind of like they they're trying to be sincere, but really kind of felt a little bit power hungry. And then uh, just like, I think then when that was, you know, maybe that was kind of what we saw, like there was like this, this like, Hey, you know, I'm really sincere. I'm like really trying to make this work, but then there'd be like this subtle undertone of like, but you know, I don't know about like, you know, what this person, you know, is doing or like there'd be like these little comments and things like this that would kind of, you know kind of be directing like downing other people and things like that that uh, were were really in a subtle way and then kind of became like a little bit of a back and forth between my co-founder and I on like you know what's healthy what's healthy for the team and you know and 
there's a lot of uh, pressure and urgency that can turn into anxiety that can say like, well, we need, you know, we need more people that are, you know, producing as much as this person uh, versus like uh, healthy, you know, a safe space that where people trust each other, we can produce more. And I think there's lots of different ways to have culture. For me, you know, the latter is something that I want. And I think other people might create cultures, which we've seen a lot in Silicon Valley, where it's the former, where it's, you know, it's all production and it's less these soft skills. And meanwhile, you and Eric disagreed about this person. It seems like Eric wanted that drive, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, that's how we worked probably to a fault. I think, I mean, I think that's like the one time in my life where I've felt like, you know, completely burnt out because just didn't feel supported. Didn't feel like was working nonstop. This is like our baby. And, you know, just then running into all these conflicts. And I'm like, this is supposed to be something that we're enjoying doing as well as, as well as doing it and working hard. And it just, I think that was kind of the definition of burnout for me was seeing people leave and be really upset with like some of the uh, situations that they were confronted with. You told our producer, you hired a Googler. She eventually, which is a big win here in the city, right? She eventually leaves because she left. Uh, yeah, she left because she just couldn't work with this said person, and and uh, and because and again, I was like a one step removed, so I didn't really get that feedback loop. Um, and then when I did, uh, it was it was too late, right? She was like, "Hey, I'm mm-hmm. I'm leaving." I'm like, "Let's take a walk, talk about it." Okay, here's why I'm leaving. She because is more candid, and you know, I just felt like the biggest failure, to be honest. I get uh, it that I wasn't taking care of people on our team. I wasn't making them feel safe and it wasn't something fun anymore. Okay. And so you left, did you cash yeah. out? You did. Did you cash out before you left or you still? No, I, I, yeah, I, I left a little bit before, but I stayed in the board and I, I, I supported in the sale. Okay. And wow, this is just really painful. I was going to say, why didn't you get a therapist or a coach or a lot of people go to marriage therapy <laughs> with their co-founders, but you did. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. I we, 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 we did. It was a, like, it was like a little bit too late. I think there was a lot of these issues. There's a lot of conflict and we actually, my co me, my co-founder and this other person all actually, we paid, you know, to have us get coaches and also have coaches like work us together. And I feel like even the coach was like, this, this something seems pretty, you know, unhealthy here, but without like, you know, wow. um, isn't, I know, I, I think there's a rule, right? Like your therapist shouldn't be, uh, you know, talking, coaching you and your partner at the same yeah. time. <laughs> but, but, it, well, if it's, if it's joint therapy, yes, but you're right. When yeah, you're yeah. seeing people individually, individually it does feel yeah. like I, I did that once with someone who I, uh, I was dating and I found myself kind of sh- making my stories you know, expressing yeah. them in a way that made me sound good and kind of like negging hers. So that yes, the therapist yes. wouldn't would give her bad information and tell her yeah. to be better to me. That's just no way to work. All right. I see, I see the problem there. You then left and it looks like you just took some time away, right? Well, I tried at first I tried. Um <laughs> I tried and then uh, I talked to Christine Sai at 500 Startups, who's one of our investors. And you know, I did the this is kind of probably something that, you know, if any founder that's left in any sort of way is, is used to, it's like, you know, you kind of do the rounds 
talk to your investors, you talk to, you know, the people closestly involved and you say, Hey, look, like things are good. Things are fine. You know, uh, we're, you know, I'm just going to step away because it's better for me. Okay. Uh, but you know, everything's running just fine. And, uh, and so I kind of was like going and having those conversations to, you know, help storefront continue on. And, uh, and then she was like, why don't you come here and like EIR for a little while? And I was like, ah, <laughs> I'm really like, you know, I was, that was the, probably the, my deepest low, right. It's like, I never wanted to give up on this. I never wanted to give up and it just, it just wasn't healthy. And, uh, and so she, I kind of did some part-time work. Actually, I kind of jumped into it, like maybe like a month or month later. What type of work uh, were you doing? Yeah. With 500, uh, I got involved with, uh, their, uh, their, their accelerator and in, in, down in Mountain View. Um, and then eventually transitioned to the San Francisco one and kind Did of coached what? founders, like was able to finally like spend some time on mentorship and give they back a bit. A coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing that I wonder, what is it that, what is it that you do? I've, I've noticed on uh, some of my friends will just go and be coaches at 500 startups. And there's some of them like Sean Percival. He's a marketing oh. guy. You know him? Oh yeah. He's wonderful. Yeah. So I totally understood it, but he had that only marketing skill. If anything else, he, he almost needed to be rounded out. You don't have that specific one thing that you could say, I'm the mm. guy who's going to coach you on this. Meanwhile, you didn't have a giant exit, which then would give you the credibility to say, I can coach you on everything. So what was it that you were able to go in and help with? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, you know, pulled a lot from that experience around culture, running, you know, managing your team. Um, 500 is very focused on the growth side of things. So I, you know, it's definitely, it's maybe I'm not super niche in like one type of marketing or anything, but um, I love like brainstorming and like thinking about growth hacking, sales hacking, and trying to figure out ways to get, you know, very early companies off the ground. Got it. So it's, it's not just, I'm a generalist, I'm an entrepreneur. I did it once. I know everything I'll do it for you guys and help you do it yourselves. It's more like I could do growth hacking. What's one growth hacking thing that you did at Storefront? Yeah. Yeah. I'd probably just go back to like the most successful thing we did was um, build this machine of, uh, crawling, you know, scraping, crawling leads from some of the major e-commerce sites and then outreach in a way that was very uh, effective and wasn't uh, deemed too spammy. <laughs> uh, like so that Etsy thing that we talked about, it was all automated. Yeah. And so yes. how would you get email addresses of people on Etsy? Um, you could pull, uh, yeah, for Etsy, I think we pulled URLs and we cross reference to either probably social sites. And then there was, um, there was some tools that you could, if you had certain types of data, you could run them through them and they would say like, okay, here's like email addresses for that. Uh, but it was kind of duct taped together a bit. Like yep. now there's a lot of great tools to run things like this, like outreach or, uh, built with, or, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot or grow, grow bots. Um, that were like built all around this sort of outreach. But uh, now uh, at that time, we just kind of duct tape tools together and kind of co-reference things quite a bit. Got it. I did. I remember interviewing somebody around this time who at the end of the interview told me that he was doing something like this too. And he explained why he didn't want to include it in the interview. And it was super automated and it was a real, it was just a real driver for his business. I didn't let him lie in the interview, obviously by saying what, what did something else work? Like we figured out uh, word of mouth, but I understood why he wouldn't want to give me more details within the interview about this. And it worked then it seems to still grow, work now. And um, 
I could see now why you'd end up with 500 startups. Let's skip ahead for just a second for, for my sponsor. My second sponsor is uh, SEMrush. You told me that you use it at CTO.ai. That's where you're working right now. You're doing growth for them, right? And beyond that, mm-hmm. growth, community, et cetera. How do you use SEMrush? Yeah, we, um, well, we work with developers. And so a big part of working with developers is a totally different type of marketing. Um, things that are very like helpful, you can't do these flashy ads. And so we do a lot of things where around content and one part of that is just understanding certain keywords and what people are searching and, um, and understanding like how, how we rank against competitors and so all those things with SEM Rush. What's well, one specific thing that you've done that helped you get more more traffic or more customers? Yeah. Well, we we monitor our um, rankings and what keywords that we rank for in Google search. And uh, let's take Kubernetes, um, one of the major platforms that we try to simplify okay. with the platform. And so we just we we basically you know one of the things is just. Com- going in there daily watching where we're, we're, we're ranking and like, how do we, how do we build up with new keywords, new keyword strings, um, that are, we can rank and then kind of build that into our entire platform while, you know, providing quality content, but it helps us focus a bit on like what's happening, um, in search and who we rank, who we competing against for so those typing keywords. Kubernetes into SEMrush. You're seeing, mm-hmm other keywords that go along with that, that you should be creating articles for? Yeah. 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 Basically uh, maybe there's other tools that are, you know, what's, what are, what is, what's the highest volume of like a Kubernetes and I don't know, um, uh, like cloud native, like, you know, or, or like different, different kind of developer tools tied together or, um, what, what are people doing when they're trying to do Kubernetes and like a lot of, you know, developers have a problem, they Google search. And so I think that kind of surfaces some of that helpful information, um, where we know what questions maybe could help be helpful to answer. And, and then, you know, and which ones are not being answered properly or as strong as you could on other sites, but still have Mm -hmm. a lot of traffic, meaning a lot of people are searching for them. And so you will say, all right, this is what we write an article about. Do you write the article yourself? No. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, but, uh, so we, you know, we outsource some, or like, we'll have people on the team do it. Um, and, uh, and you know, we, it's nice to have a technical point of view where you're like, okay, like, Hey, look, I'm trying to figure out how to use fastify with CTO.ai. And, uh, and so like, you know, there's like, you can include code snippets or do a video. Um, but the helpfulness is understanding that fastify this, uh, this framework, um, is something that people are like trying to figure out and they're trying to figure out how to use it to run their web application. All right. If anyone out there wants to get started with them, go to semrush.com or, you know what, let me see if we, if they go to mixergy.com slash semrush, they will get a free account right now, limited time. So here it is a URL that will redirect you to the, to pop the discount code and everything in it's mixergy.com slash semrush, M-I-X-E-R-G-Y.com slash S-E-M-R-U-S-H. Go do it now. In the past, people have complained that they didn't do it fast enough. And I've had to go and apologize to SEMrush and ask them to give this person an extra account and this person, just do it now. So I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> really, seriously, go grab it while it's still available. I'm, go- right. I'm going to go right now. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't think you qualify. If you, once you pay... <laughs> Um, or, you know, or maybe CTO.ai doesn't qualify. All right. 
of all the things that you've done, I think what I'm, I'm most interested in is you created a syndicate, meaning other people put their money in through AngelList in a pool that you then invest, right? How much yeah, money? I'm, yeah, go ahead. I'm, I, I'm, re- I'm, I'm really impressed by like, I think that's one of the undervalued things is just like the effect AngelList has had on the VC, opening up the VC um, VC opportunities for anyone to be at VC. And I guess the, the advantage is for investors that operators like you, people who are in the tech space, you know who's who's real and who's just faking it. You get a sense of what's working. They're friends of yours, so they'll let you into an investment that they may not uh, allow others. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, how are you finding the these deals? How'd you find the investors? Let's start with the investors, right? You just say, I'm doing the syndicate. You're allowed to promote it. People have to come in and invest. I think, I forget how many you have. It's like 36 people, am I right? Oh, on uh, the syndicate now, actually, um, probably about 120. 120. Um, a lot of people, I would say, uh, the ones that I, the people that have joined through AngelList are probably, you know, they're maybe they're investing like a thousand to 10 K or something like this. Okay. Um, otherwise it's like personal network friends that, you know, know me and there's usually some level of trust there. So people who are coming in through AngelList might just discover you on AngelList and say, you know, this guy's invested in a few things. Let's just throw a few bucks because they're just diversifying and trying a lot of different, um, uh, trying to back a lot of different investors. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's like that. And then like the kind of the friends and family side of it. And then they might even see on your profile that you founded Storefront, you raised $10 million and were acquired by WeOpen, right? And yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. that's got this sense of, well, look at this guy. He's raised a lot of money. He was acquired. They may not realize that you were acquired for less than you raised, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's a, there's a mix of like, I've spent time like on the fundraising side of things. And, but really probably more importantly is like the time I've spent with 500 on the other side of the table where I've like seen, mm. I've probably, you know, through six batches in San Francisco as you know, helped, 200 plus companies come through and, you know, there's something about working with an accelerator where you get this, you know, you're like making this investment decision at the beginning uh-huh. and then you get to see four months later, like where they're at. Did you and get I to think do that? that you know, were you beyond helping them with, with growth hacking? You were also helping yeah. to make the decision who to back because you were working with them. You knew who to back. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, I think, um, separate, separate from the, the, the syndicate side of things, um, that, you know, was, we, I was making like these investment decisions kind of like a traditional VC would, right. Yeah. You'd, you have a, you have a meeting like once a week and you say, okay, like we're bringing these people into the, you know, accelerator, who do we think we can help? What, what, what it look like big opportunities, you know, and then we'll go through this like cycle of all these interviews and, and then make, make our selections. And, uh, and then, you know, unlike a traditional VC where, you know, they, a lot of traditional VCs don't get that involved. It's kind of like we make the investment and then maybe we hear about you in, you know, in a year, or maybe if we're more involved, make it, make a bigger investment, we hear about you, you know, monthly or quarterly, we get to see them. We're with them every single day. And so we kind of, you get to, you get to learn a little bit of that kind of venture capital pattern matching style of Mm. understanding who succeeds and who doesn't. How long were you with 500? Um, I was with them for kind of close to four years. Wow. Seems as well like as doing like some ad hoc stuff uh, while we were we were traveling and we helped them launch a couple of programs uh, internationally as well. 
Okay. That seems like a really great position. So you get a good salary. You get insight into what's working with these companies or not, right? Mm-hmm. Is it a good yeah. salary? Uh, I'd say 500, 500 salary is, uh, that, that let's just say this is like when I joined, they were like, you know, we're not paying, we're not the biggest dollar mm. on the block. More uh, than a hundred thousand a year. Really great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you get really great, uh, you know, experience and you get to learn how to be an investor. And, uh, I think all that's true. And, uh, it's, it's a, you know, and they, they were also a very like, Hey, let's, let's invest in like founders, no matter, you know, where they're from, you know, what they look like, like they yeah. were very early on supporting founders, you know, that were international. They were very early on just trying to find ways to, uh, support founders that weren't as represented in Silicon Valley. And I think that was something that they just didn't, they didn't always do a great job of telling that story, but it was something that was kind of baked into the, to no, the they were really the good about, to, about doing that. They would get on a plane and go to other countries to understand yeah. it. I remember Dave McClure, one of the co-founders of 500 startups telling me that he specifically was looking for people who are underrepresented moms, parents, mm-hmm. uh, uh, parents, people who are older because they, there's their markets now that were coming online, but weren't being addressed. Okay. So I get how you were then building your relationships, learning to see what worked I'm guessing also you raised some money from some of the entrepreneurs who went through these through 500 startups and some that invested through 500 startups that were you building those kinds of relationships? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. I mean, best thing about an accelerator program is like the relationships that you create through them. And that's true of the founder to founder, as well as like the kind of investor to founder. All right. And so how much, how much money is backing you on, on AngelList? Oh, good question. <laughs> um, it's it's been a while since I've I've checked. To be honest, I've been a this little be bit a rough... less uh, active. Mm-hmm. What? You just give me a rough uh, idea. Oh, I've just been about. a little bit less active. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I don't know. There might be like a couple million in like okay. total, uh, like total. But it's just kind of pretty rough because it's 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 like I'll say I'll invest this much. And it just adds it up. And so I think recently they took that away. That's why I can't, I don't have like a quick figure without adding things up. You'll say I'll invest as much and then take it away. Oh, uh, like, like, uh, each LP that you have in the syndicate will, uh, have like, I, on average, I invest $1,000 or an on average, I invest $10,000 or, um, and they used to show that on the syndicate of like the total of what people would say, say that they'll invest, mm-hmm. but you could put anything. So, uh, it was kind of a rough estimate. Okay. I thought I saw that even today when I looked at it, but maybe, Oh, okay. Maybe I'm wrong. All right. Why aren't you excited about doing more of these angel investments? It doesn't seem like that's where your focus is. Yeah. Um, I think, well, I'm doing a follow on right now for, uh, for actually a company that had worked done a syndicate on before. Um, but uh, while we were traveling, we, we kind of digital nomaded for a couple of years and just kind of tuned a little bit out and focused more on, you know, what are, you know, just international uh, startup communities and, and entrepreneurs and how we can help there. Personally, not part of 500 startups. Correct. Yeah. We did work with 500 while we traveled, mm-hmm. but just that was like, we basically, my wife worked for Lyft at the time and I was working for 500 and we just quit on like the end of the year. and decided to just travel a bit and do that 
uh, you know, just get out and see the world a bit. And you just wanted a year of, it seems like that's what it was, right? It, it was like a sabbatic. What did you call it? Sabbatical. Yeah. Sabbatamoon. Sabbatamoon. Well, we also got married. So I've been, I've been together with Danielle for, man, I don't even 14 years now. Uh, And so, and, but we, we only got married like 10 years in. And so, uh, and so we were like, let's finally get married and take that one way ticket trip that we always wanted to take. And so you went for how many countries, how many months? We, uh, we planned for a year, but we, so we, we pretty much, you know, got rid of most of our stuff, you know, sold it, donated it, gave my parents like what was, what was ever left and just furnished one of the rooms that my sister just moved out of. And then, uh, that kind of left it open, which ended up becoming two years. And, uh, the odd, the odd thing about the timeline is that we got back and that's why I'm in Minnesota now, because we got back and we were just visiting family and then COVID started. Mm-hmm. And so, so somehow we made this magical timeline of traveling as to 60 countries in two years. And then as we were naturally finishing COVID started and we just spent all this time in Minnesota. I lucked out that way too, that I wanted to do seven marathons on seven continents. And I finished it just a couple of couple of months before COVID hit. And I'm so glad that I didn't put it off for another year, for another month. It just would never have happened. I could never get to Antarctica if I missed that one window that I, that I, yeah, got. that's, that's, an, that's incredible. So what, what yeah. marathon did you do in Antarctica? So actually because of my schedule, uh, for work and family, I couldn't get into formal marathons. And I also needed to do this fast. A friend of mine convinced me to do this all in one year, thankfully. So I said, I can't get into any of the marathons on Antarctica. I kept pushing them to let me in. I kept trying. I would pay anything to get in, and they weren't willing to take my money because they're long wait lists, and there are international laws about who can do what on Antarctica and how many people are allowed. So finally, I found this one uh, company that watches people who do these um, long ski trips, You know, where they're just kind of going to the South Pole on, uh, on skis uh, and sleds, and... Um, and I got on their airplane to Antarctica and I ran 26.2 miles on my own. I just went and I did it. They, <laughs> That's they incredible. Have to make sure there are no crevasses that you fall into, that you're safe, that you're not peeing somewhere. Like even on a run, they want they want to make sure that you're not peeing on the snow because it's actually a oh, desert wow. there, which means that it's gonna, this, your pee will stay there for years if you leave it there. So huh. they're watching me to make sure I'm not damaging the environment and making sure I'm not getting damaged by the environment. But I go out and I do my my own marathon and it was killer good. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was like my my like, you know, ha- hacker mind like instantly thought I'm like, wait, then maybe he just like got onto one small piece of Antarctica and just ran in circles. I would it have. I w- you know what I would, you know what I did in a moment of desperation, I called this one uh, cruise company and I said, you're going to be an international in Antarctic waters, right? They said, yes. Can I get to Antarctica and just run back and forth? They said, actually, let me check. They checked. They said, no, impossible. Can't get you to do it. Not this trip. I said, what about on your, on your boat? You'll be in, in Antarctic waters. Can I just run around the boat? They said, let me check. I don't think they came back. I said, that's absolutely not going to be safe. It could be icy. We can't have you running around. I said, all right, if I could probably do it when they're not paying attention, but not necessarily. I can't. So I kept going and going. Well, that's amazing. What a great right. accomplishment. That's what I'm really Damn impressed. Good. Yeah, man. Um, all right. We've covered a lot here. Here's the thing that I've learned. Number one, you can lose control of your own company, which stinks. Number two, I think a lot of people pretend that once they sold that everything is great and that they they know everything. We've discovered that selling is not necessarily as big an exit as, as you know, the name exit would imply, right? 
you weren't, you didn't, you didn't get yourself set for life, make good money with all these investments, or is it too early to tell? Yeah, a little, I was still a little bit early. Um, you know, need to get a little bit closer, I think, to the 10 year horizon. Okay. All right. And then finally, you know, what we didn't cover is CTO.ai. What do you like about working there? Yeah. Um, well, the, I think one thing that leave, you know, comes out of, uh, out of, uh, 500 is a lot of connections, a lot of friends. And, uh, one of their, one of CTO's investors, um, Chris Newman actually introduced me to Kyle, the, the founder of CTO AI. And he was like, this is the smartest person I've ever worked with. And he's awesome. You should talk to him. And I was just coming back, you know, starting to come back from this trip and thinking about, you know, okay, like I'm, you know, nothing, you know, I hadn't, nothing, I had any projects I'd worked on kind of, you know, snowballed into something that I was going to work on full time. And, uh, and so I met Kyle and I was just like, wow, this guy's awesome. Not only is he smart and he's like kind of this, like, you know, mad scientist that can do everything, uh, you know, self-taught developer, um, you know, now CEO, he, his last company sold to Zillow, uh, but he's also really thoughtful. And I think that's what I've appreciated most and why I've, 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 you know, been so happy spending time with this company was it's, just, it's just run really well. And there's some really thoughtful people in the leadership that are like, you know, they build trust. They think about all these different as- aspects of, of culture and leadership and imp- self-improvement and how to help people have those foundations of safety and trust and, um, you know, transparency and things like that. And so it's like, I learn a lot from him. And I think that's probably, you know, my, I'm one of those people that's probably always going to jump around to different industries and try different things. Um, you know, whatever you, you know, I've, it, the term, I guess I, someone told me right before I left on our trip was multi-potentialite. It's kind of, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, different people get you, you get enough out of something and you move on. It's not, it's not like you're giving up. You just, you got really full on it and you felt great. And you're like, Oh, I want to try something else. There's so many things to try. I feel uh, like there, there are a lot of people who are like that. Um, and very few who do it, especially well, like Dave McClure, he was called the, the, what was his site? 500 hats, right? Because oh, he would do yep. so many different things. Right. Um, yeah. and then he found a way to make it all work. And of course he went on to found 500 startups and that's where the 500 I think came from. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I could see how that would work for you. Here's the part that I'm still sad about. Storefront should have been killer. It's just, it hurts me that that didn't become a huge company. Do you think that there's potential for that to be a huge company now? Do you think like, what's wrong with that model? It makes so much freaking sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, you're looking at, you know, if you look at Airbnb, yeah. Um, and the, you know, the, the, there's a lot of people renting, but for much smaller, uh, you know, cart sizes and for storefront, it's like much bigger cart sizes. You know, we worked with everyone from Nike to Kanye West. Um, there's a lot of potential and a lot of repeat customers at a scale that companies can do. And, uh, and Mo, the new CEO is, is amazing. And it's been a very, you know, it's obviously for a lot of companies, but definitely for storefront, a very tough year with, the way retail has been kind of, you know, 
open and open on and off hot, hot and cold again. But I think it's, I think when things open up, I think it's, there's still a huge potential now I'm hoping more than ever. It'll be better. Yeah. I'm hoping that the pandemic actually, that this is that they're going to be able to help in the pandemic uh, in the post pandemic world, because there will be stores that are open and hopefully they will be more open to different ideas. And I think that if we walk down the street and see the same store over and over, there's a boredom to it. But if you know that there's this one spot where every week a different creator could be there and could take it over and make it into something brand new, it becomes more interesting to go there. And frankly, there are a lot of people who I see online who I would love to see in person and experience their stuff in person, to touch it, to see how it works. What I'm thinking about is this one, uh, I forget the name of the company, it's a company that makes camera equipment all the tripods and the bags. And I see them when I run down, uh, 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 well, right by the bay here in San Francisco, I see they've got a space there, but I'm not going to go into their into their offices. I wish that they would just have some retail location every once in mm-hmm. a while so I can go in and see what it looks like. And that's yeah. where I feel the potential for storefront is. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, you see it, it, you've seen it. You kind of called it out right in the beginning, right? With your like, you know, Apple store, but no Samsung store. And now right. you see Microsoft store, you see Casper, Warby Parker, Bonobos, you know, all these e-commerce, traditional e-commerce retailers have moved um, in person. And obviously it works because they keep expanding the number of stores that they have. The Verge used to do that. Every once in a while, they would create a pop-up store and people would just jump in there. Imagine if Product Hunt did not just a, I think they used to do these drinks, these drinks nights, but instead Let's do a maker night where you come in and you not just see the products that our makers created, but you buy the things to start to create more physical products or help people who are creating physical products. So, all right. I obviously love that business a lot. I'm, um, <laughs> I'm glad to have met you. And what's the best place of these 5 billion different sites? Where's the best place for people? Go? <laughs> One of the things that I noticed about you is, you know how a lot of sites will have ways to link to different people's social uh, media uh, accounts. You fill them all up. You got a Dribble account, a Twitter account, a Behance account, a this account. What's the best of all these places people go find you? Yeah, that's that's my multi potential uh, coming out. Um, yeah, I think TristanPollock.com or I'm just right. Pollock on Twitter, and that's probably the most frequented places. Or Pollock and on you know, Twitter. you know, Tristan Pollock on Clubhouse. You know, relevant relevant uh, <laughs> chill there. <laughs> And you know what? Whatever will come out tomorrow, he'll be on there and it'll be listed on on his About Me page, which he still has. All right. Thank you so much for being here. I want to thank thank two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you're hosting a website, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. The second, um, you heard it from Tristan. You're not getting paid to talk about it, right? I'm definitely getting paid. You're not. You like it? You brought it up? I'm I'm paying to talk about it. You're paying to talk about it. Yes. Go check out SEMrush. Uh, you can go to their website or if you want to try them out for free for a limited time, you can go to Mixergy.com slash SEMrush. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.